there's no, um, I would say, risk management or risk uh, mm. maturity. There's only an adoption of tools and pulling that is a purely technological issue rather than a business risk that needs to be addressed from the three pillars that we keep on talking in cybersecurity, people, process, and then technology. Hey everybody, welcome back to Sizzle Life. I'm Brian Hoagley, brought to you by Side Channel. Very lucky today to have a special guest, all the way actually from the other side of the world, literally, Dr. Magna Celli. She is the CEO for Responsible Cyber, currently out of Singapore. So yeah, hi Brian, thank you very much for having me today on the show. I'm really happy to be here, and especially to discuss exactly what you mentioned, you know, basically the similarities and the differences between the United States and Asia Pacific in particular around how they address cybersecurity and what's the importance, I would say, or the perception of responsibilities for chief information security officer. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the interesting component that that jumped out at me when we started talking about this was the adoption of senior level level leadership in security in Singapore. You know, five years ago, I came out of DOD and started, you know, seeing the, the U.S. market had had just started adopting that role. And I was shocked then that it, it still wasn't as prevalent, right? Like the there was just articles coming out. I remember Matt Combs, uh, he's a recruiter, had just started writing these big articles that were getting traction about the, the emergence of the CISO. Even though Steve Katz was the first CISO from years and years ago, only about five, six years ago, did we really start seeing companies start embracing it? And I mean, companies outside of like the fortune 50. Uh, so that was, that was really interesting that, so tell us about like, you know, what you're seeing within APAC and that space and that adoption of the role. First of all, it's really important to understand that APAC or Asia Pacific is actually not one market. Okay. Of maturities, there are several level of regulatory requirements which actually impact the practical approach onto having cybersecurity embedded within the strategy of the company, or even taking this as properly a cyber risk across the board, for example. And as a very common, um, I would say, you know, uh, definition or approach is taking consideration Asia Pacific into several regions, as I mentioned. Australia and New Zealand separate, Asia, Southeast Asia separate, and then China and North Asia is another region. And again, as I mentioned, the regulatory landscape or legislative landscape is actually very different, which okay. impacts the maturity of those countries. And what is the one common point is that all this market is driven by privacy laws that and some other like for example, Monetary Authority of Singapore in, in Singapore that actually drive the fact if yes or no, the company will have on board a chief information security officer. Hmm. So to answer your question and coming back to the fact, is it, you know, about the adoption of CISO? I think we are still in that particular period that like you mentioned that is still growing. Hmm. For example, we have listed companies in the region that do not have a chief information security officer. Wow. And by that, they don't even have an IT security or a cyber security strategy. They just wow. have the IT folks deploying technology or going digital. Right. This is 
a fact that has been very, I would say for me, when I came to Singapore five years ago, very shocking, I want to say. Sure. Yeah. So you've got, I mean, that's a great point. And that's, I think, probably the biggest catalyst that I've seen in the U.S. market is regulation has driven the use of a CISO. Larger organizations, probably, you know, large enough to have enterprise risk, uh, have been dealing with risk, said, hey, internally, we need somebody to oversee security. But, you know, the smaller, you know, as you kind of go down from the, the you know, Fortune 500, even, um, it there's no driver, right? The adoption isn't there. So an outside force has to be. And that's, you know, we witnessed that here in the United States. Um, you know, notably, New York State, when they came out with uh, New York State uh, DFS, came out with Part 500 of that financial services law, regulated everybody inside of the financial services space to include insurance companies, banks, etc. They required them to have a CISO. So now that's when you start seeing the adoption. But, you know, if left to their own devices, mid-market and small companies are sitting there going, mm, is it really worth the cost, right, for me to bring that on? Do I really need it? And I, my, you know, I think our similar views are, yes, you do, but we're seeing that no one's adopting it because of cost restraints and the view that, oh, I need this full-time person or I need, you know, like I, I, maybe I already, or it's just an IT issue. So why can't the CIO or the head of IT just handle it? I mean, this is a very good point. Uh, in my opinion, all Asia Pacific has this approach in majority. So mm. the CIO or the CEO thinks that the CTO will take care of the security or the IT manager, uh, and they don't need any additional strategy roadmap. There's no, um, I would say, risk management or risk uh, mm. maturity. There is only an adoption of tools and pulling that is a purely technological issue rather than a business risk that needs to be addressed from the three pillars that we keep on talking in cybersecurity, people, process, and then technology. Right. And the problem with that, it means that it's still, even within companies with a thousand of employees in the region, they might still not have at all any cybersecurity roadmap. Just mm. an antivirus, a firewall, a few other tools, and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's been a big thing that we've seen inside of the mid market is you know they've been sold kind of along the lines of oh it's just a you know a component of IT AV and firewall we're good um, and so many organizations I've walked into even large organizations you know that's their thinking is you know antivirus and firewalls will save us um, and oh we're compliant so our security is good but and and pivoting to you know where the U S is kind of in this adoption curve talking a lot about curves lately right this one's not gonna this one's not going to flatten this one. You just got to kind of ride um, is, you know, the U.S. has now started seeing this push because of, I think, these regulations at state levels and the SEC in their waves of reviews have adopted the NIST CSF, the cybersecurity framework. Um, other states have now adopted this same thing and are pushing for more than just antivirus, firewalls, IT issue. And now we're seeing this, this, you know, people are picking up and realizing, oh, we can't protect and stop everything. Breaches are happening. How do we detect and respond to those breaches? How do we further our capabilities? How do we allow people to work remotely? Like all these things that weren't really prevalent or viewed as risks five, even 10 years ago, 
you know, now are, and that seems to be pushing in the U.S. market that mid-market or that mid-business, mid-sized business and small businesses to start adopting some of these, what used to be only enterprise-level security controls. So let's, I mean, what are you seeing within that mid-market small business space on adoption? Like, where are they kind of on the curve? Where do you think they are in relation to the United States? So if we are looking at general the mid-market and the SME, small, medium enterprises, Especially, let's start with Singapore. They represent more than 90% of the, of the current market. So therefore, they represent a really important part of the businesses in general. And that means that they might be exposed to cyber risk as you know any other business. But there's no consideration from those companies unless they are regulated by the Monetary Authority of Mm. And one example that other countries in the region should follow is exactly that approach. So the Monetary Authority of Singapore has been more an advisory board than taking the role and initiative to actually even go beyond just having guidelines on technology and security, but also sending, you know, on regular updates and informing those businesses about cyber hygiene and requesting them to actually comply with those guidelines to a certain mm. extent which help a lot the market. However, of course, as we know, not everyone needs to comply with an MAS regulation that is purely for financial institutions. Right. But as a leave, it leave all the other markets, all the other industries, shipping in particular, manufacturing, construction, uh, all the other small and medium enterprises that think that they are concerned. They are not a target, they are not concerned. And mm. even if something happens, it's okay, they will be still in business. While we know very well as per statistics, if uh, currently an SME is attacked, they actually go out of business within six months yep. after a cyber attack. And right. as another side or another point that happened with the COVID-19 and the remote working, we actually find those businesses all going into remote working and a digitalization that is literally driven by the COVID-19. However, the cybersecurity is left behind. What does it mean? They do not see actually that business continuity is not about resilience. It does not bring you the cybersecurity. It's about mm -hmm. being able to continue to perform the business. And right. that business continuity plan that was built five years ago, it was, for example, very, a very traditional one. It's yep. only about giving the opportunity for employees and continue if there's something that would happen. You know, the, the question that I've got is, you know, regulators aren't coming down on the businesses within Singapore. But, you know, what are you seeing about larger enterprises kind of doing vendor management and, and requiring of their supply chain, which is made up of, you know, these small and mid-sized businesses? What are the larger companies setting expectations for? Like, where, where does that look? I have a smile because honestly, I think the vendor management and the supply chain risk management is an area that's extremely immature across all this region. Perhaps again, less in Australia and New Zealand due to their laws around privacy that are stricter. But in general, in Asia, in Southeast Asia, there is a lack of understanding or maturity that the risks and the breach data breach can come from a vendor. So what does currently uh, that mean 
or how it's materialized, basically businesses have an Excel file that they send to their vendors and the vendor check yes, 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 and then they receive it and it's okay, my due diligence is done. And I have seen that across many companies, listed and listed, you know, big, smaller, right. and it's unfortunate. There, there's no strategy behind it. There's no understanding of what liability that will actually, uh, you know, uh, lead to. And as well, thinking in the particular approach, and, and here is a question for you, but what I have seen Asia-Pacific as well is, is a complete misunderstanding of the shared responsibility model. Oh, yeah. We're talking about vendor providing cloud services and companies thinking that those vendors are taking care of the security by default. So mm -hmm. it's, I'm not sure how or why those companies believe that someone else will take care of the security yeah. while it's not written black and white on right. the contract. But, you know, I have even seen people who have an important experience in writing contracts, forgetting that part, that if it's not written there, no one else is taking care of the security. And even if they are, they're taking care of their own security, not the data of the customer or the client that is actually buying the services from them. Right. So again, the supply chain and vendor management, in my opinion, is extremely immature. It is based on filling and checking rather than real assessment of the vendor's capability. Yeah. So the reason I'm smiling is because the U.S. has no shining beacon or example of how to do that either. We're doing, I see that more and more, uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's almost, it's laughable at some point because everybody's just kind of doing that due diligence. Here's the Excel file, fill out these answers. And then what do you actually, one, sometimes I even question what the upstream provider who's asking those questions is actually doing with those answers, if anything, or are they just saying, okay, good, you answered all the things. Thank you. We're going to file this away. Um, you know, then we see the proliferation of, you know, these scoring um, companies, you know, all creating their own proprietary kind of number, right? Everyone, my belief is do what the credit agencies do, right? All the credit agencies adhere to the FICO score, the, the one number. Instead, in security, we have all these different vendors creating their own standards. So if one company uses one and one company uses other, it's like, ah, oh, great. Now you're going to go through this. So it's there, that, that hurts us. It doesn't help us. And then you're right. The, the vendor community or the, the, the downstream vendors being assessed, uh, don't fully understand even what they're answering. Right. It, it's almost akin to like an insurance application. Like, it's like, do you really know everything you're being asked in there? Do you need somebody to maybe help you with this? But the expectation is, oh, you're answering all of these things. Like, oh, do you have this or that? I think I do. Check, check. I really want the business. So check, check, check. You know, like that's that's yeah. kind of the approach. And it's not it's not benefiting either downstream or upstream in that process. Um, and it's it is. It's just kind of a compliance due diligence piece. And it's not really managed very well. You know, I don't see a lot of success coming out of it. Well, here's the here's the litmus test. How many times have you ever seen any upstream uh, company deny working with a downstream vendor based on the assessment? It rarely happens. It rarely happens. It rarely happens, yeah. But it, I, I have seen it happen. But okay. honestly, I have also seen a situation where I pushed uh, a client of mine to stop working with a vendor due to the fact that this, this I just didn't have any confidence about the answers. 
Sure. After assessing the vendor by a conference call, which actually I usually do for critical, especially critical vendors, uh, I concluded that there is not uh, the right minimum security controls in place. Uh, and also there was a problem in the integrity of the vendor because again, mm. you're filling the third party assessment and then you actually say that you comply with all the facts, but I find out that you're not, uh, you know, like as simple as I am implementing a two-factor authentication and you say yes, but you are not, mm -hmm. then wrong. there's a problem with the integrity and the core values of the vendor. Yeah. So, I always advise, you know, because I work with partners as well in the region, is better up front, and then we can find a compensating way, a compensating controls or something around it that makes us understand the responsibilities and liabilities of each party involved. There's no point into, you know, it's again, if something happens, that's when everyone looks at the contract. Right. If right. something happens, no one does. But no, if but yeah. something bad happens everyone will go to every single detail. Yep. So if there was something wrong, it will backfire on the vendor. Right. So it yep. is also responsibility. But the other thing that uh, I was very surprised as well is, and this is global, I don't think it's very particular to Asia Pacific, mm -hmm. but you have sometimes very extensive questionnaires for vendor management. And those questionnaires actually are absolutely irrelevant to the solution or the service sure. that is being provided to that customer. Right. So it is also, you know, the alignment of, okay, what is the risk for that service or that product that I'm buying and integrating with my ecosystem? Yep. yep. It's not just, again, check the box exercise. That right. Is not yeah, everybody can't do the same thing. I, I've been a big, there's a, I'll, I'll link it uh, up above, but I did a whole YouTube talk and I'll just draw it out real quickly. But like the concept is kind of tiered, tiered security management. You know, if you bucketize your vendors into who's your most important, who's your second most and third most, and you can do this based on either business processes or the data that they store or, or whatever your, your requirements, maybe even have multiple requirements you know, that put people in certain buckets, right? You need to create security controls that are relevant for each one and they need to be different, right? You can't ask tier three vendor providers and have the same expectations. If they're handling public data or, or not having administrative access or internal access to your infrastructure, why are you asking these guys the same questions you're asking like your tier one super critical providers? In order for this whole thing to work, and I completely agree, is you've got to kind of structure this. But this goes back to, you know, critical security controls one and two in the CSC, the early stuff inside of NIST, asset management. Like you kind of have to know your environment and know where your data is, know what you're, what you're doing with your data in order to even then go do this. So usually when you see this not happening and you see that one size fits all vendor management problem, you can usually trace back to the fact that the company isn't even doing, you know, the core basic foundational aspects of security, which is asset management, identification, like those, those key components, you can always just trace it back. So it's nice to kind of see that tie through. I'll put a graphic up on the, the component that we that you brought up that I love is who's responsible for it, right? So you've got the, you've got basically like the company right? That is, and we'll say this is their HQ and these are their vendors. 
the company's sitting there going, oh, I do this, this vendor works on this. That means they are responsible for all of these things. And to your point in contracts, right? That's where we're kind of spelling it out. But when you look at cloud services and, and kind of even extending the cloud service model that like CSA, the Cloud Security Alliance outlines as well to vendors, there is a shared responsibility. And usually this group here just thinks, oh, they're doing everything and because of reasons. And the reality is, is that it's, it's, it's both do a little bit, maybe some does some more on one area, but it's a shared responsibility. And you usually don't find out kind of really who's responsible until an incident or a breach happens, which like you said, forces everybody to go back to the contract to then revisit, well, who was responsible for that? Who's good, whose liability is it now sitting with? Uh, so it's, there's a lot of great concepts in here that, that I think are, are very similar between where the U.S. is and its maturity and Singapore is and what you're seeing because this stuff isn't happening. And where you and I share the same um, you know, uh, uh, current focus professionally with, with our advisory you know, businesses and, and what we're doing, yeah, I don't see anybody doing this unless they have somebody who actually has been there and done that and, and is in a role like yourself to be able to sit there with them and go, you should be doing this, right? Businesses aren't figuring this stuff out on their own. Um, and it's it's maybe it's too complicated for them to figure out on their own. I don't know. But without kind of that outside help, this stuff's just not going to happen, which means it's going to fail. And it's always just going to be some contractual fight later on. And I fear that, you know, down the road, if that kind of keeps happening, it's going to be the businesses that are in that mid-market and smaller that are going to ultimately suffer because they're going to get sued out of existence. Right, because they didn't adhere to something that the upstream wanted. And it's already so. starting. And it's already starting. You know, we mentioned Singapore as a, a like you know, because that's where I am. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at you know beyond again Southeast Asia, we already have lawsuits around data theft, you know, and this kind of insider threats, other related uh, suits that concerns cyber. Yeah. and not concern any, you know, normal traditional ones. And the moment that those will go a little bit further public across the region, that's when actually the companies and the business owners will realize, oh, well, I might actually be sued, better yeah. do my stuff properly. The other thing that I actually find out really often is companies telling me, oh, but we have it sorted. We have all the cybersecurity, you know, Excellent. It's perfect. It's in-house. It's perfect. Well, if you already consider that something wrong, because not perfection does not exist. And yeah. also, when you look at cybersecurity, it's so wide and so complex right. in terms of domain. And you have several levels of maturity. It's an ongoing area. And of course, one very important point is you cannot judge what you have done by yourself. What do I mean by that? Yep. Having yep. an external opinion or validation or recommendation, it's always a way to improve. Sure. If you never test your application because you think that your coders or developers are the best, you will never find out. It's the same when you write, for example, your thesis, and when you read it, you don't see your grammar mistakes. It's the same when you code or it's the same when you implement your own things. Right. So I think in the from the perspective of maturity, there it's also this self-criticism uh, or mm. self-improvement. We are not perfect. We have certain things, but we 
have a lower level of maturity comparing to other countries? How can I measure the maturity of my cybersecurity? And how can I ensure that I have the right capabilities today and I have the right KPIs for improvement in the next few years? And this yeah. is something also that needs to be a top-down approach. I mean, obviously the IT manager can just come in and talk to the board and tell them, oh, we need to do this uh, and we need to hire additional people. It needs to come with the support from the management and right. especially the board. Hey, I want to thank uh, Magna for, for being on and talking to me today. This is a great discussion. Uh, you know, a lot of similarities, a lot of really interesting things going on between what's going on in Singapore. Uh, obviously, the stuff that you've seen just globally, you know, because you're working outside of that space uh, in the U.S. So uh, I'm glad to see other smart people are uh, working on this and are passionate about cybersecurity and looking to help out this mid-market small business. Uh, so, Magna, thank you again for being on, and uh, you know we uh, we we look to have you on again and and continue the conversation. Thank you so much, Brian, and thank you everyone for watching today. It was indeed a very interesting conversation. I'm looking as well to continue this for the next time. So I'll post her information down below in the and please if you like this, uh, you know, comment, ask some questions, uh, drop a note, reach out. But I hope everybody's safe out there. Stay safe. Keep washing those hands. And, uh, you know, we'll see everybody on the other side of this stuff. All right. Talk to you again. Thanks.